whenever I get a chance to visit our mission partnerships, I've gotten into a little bit of a habit of the Sunday following when I get back to preach a sermon that I suppose is a response to the trip. It kind of uh, encapsulates what I felt like the Lord uh, did and showed me that during the trip. And typically there is a passage that for whatever reason the Lord brings to mind that really summarizes the experience. And this trip, um, it was, it was that simple question that Paul poses in Romans eight. If God is for us, who can be against us? I preached that verse back in 2012, but this past week it took on a whole uh, new meaning for me. We have four international partnerships. It's the way we do missions at TCPC. Rather than be spread uh, broad throughout the world, we go deep into international indigenous partnerships. And each of these partnerships have unique challenges to them. And this was my first trip to our partners in Belarus. Um, our partner there is Taras. And there is no doubt what their unique challenge is. I mean, they have poverty, just like our other partnerships do. They're facing uh, religious and theological chaos, just like our other partnerships are facing. Uh, there are many similarities, but the one thing they have uh, that was a first for me is communism. Technically, Belarus is no longer a communist state, uh, but more than any of the other countries left from the former Soviet Union, uh, they most certainly function that way. I mean, they call themselves a republic, but... Uh, that ain't no republic, what I was in last week. It is a culture formed by uh, an impressive, at, at times in their history, tyrannical state. And historically speaking, uh, not surprisingly, Christians um, have felt that as much as anyone. I could give so many examples. In fact, I, I'm going to talk a lot about my trip um, on my podcast this week, so I encourage everyone to check that out. But I'll just give you one to kind of set the scene of the uniqueness of this. We get off the plane. Um, it's actually, we had a, the, the conference that I was speaking at was that night um, that we got off the plane. So we got off the plane, had to run to the flat, uh, a flat that I was told was bugged, which is interesting. Um, so we went to the flat, got a shower. We're driving to the conference so I can give my first talk. And Taras, our partner, is prepping me a bit on things that I need to know for the conference. Um, usually those conversations are about, you know, the makeup of those people who are attending and unique cultural uh, things that I need to know and be sensitive to and logistical stuff and things like that. Uh, but Taras says to me, brother, uh, just so you know, this is an illegal conference. And I said, did you say illegal? And he said, yeah, this is illegal. I said, um, what do you mean illegal? He said, well, we're not a state-recognized church, which makes us illegal. And by the way, public gatherings like this are illegal themselves. And it's definitely illegal to bring an American to come speak at a public gathering like this. None of this had been told to me, by the way, until 15 minutes for the conference. I said, so are you telling me that the government knows I'm here and knows I'm here to do something illegal? And he said, of course, brother. He said, in, in fact, there's going to be a KGB agent there monitoring you. I said, KGB agent? As in like Russian KGB agents? They're like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I said, you sure it's going to be fine? He said, well, listen, don't talk politics, which a lot of my first talk was on like, how does this political 
culture lead to depression and anxiety. So reworking the talk in my mind. Don't talk politics shouldn't be a problem. But if by chance they bring you in for questioning, here's what you're supposed to say. And so this is my first taste of illegal Christianity in Eastern Europe, communist state. And I'm telling you, it is just as uh, dark and cruel and unjust and hopeless and oppressive as you would imagine. A culture filled with seemingly lifeless, even soulless people. They're not once you get to know them, but just... The, the culture has this feeling. They don't necessarily recognize it because for them it's just all they've ever known. But you can literally feel the oppression everywhere you turn. There's part of me, as an aside, there's part of me that wants to just take this rising generation that thinks socialism is so cool and just let them go vacation in their Eastern Europe utopian society. Uh, again, for my podcast this week, I... I I'm ranting. But this verse that came to mind all week was this small minority group of illegal Christians in this vast oppressive state where Paul says, who can be against us? It's easy to ask that question in America, but the rubber meets the road in communism, because it would seem that Paul is proclaiming here a form of, of, of Christian invincibility. But circumstantially, that would be the last way to describe our brothers and sisters in Belarus as an invincible people. But you don't have to travel to Eastern Europe to wrestle with that question. All of us, all of us can look at the circumstances of our lives And then look at this promise. And I think in our most cynical moments, laugh at this question as utterly naive. This is the challenge I want to take up this morning. To look at our circumstances and then look at this promise and dare to see which is truer. We're going to do that in two ways. The promise of invincibility and then the foundation of invincibility. Let's look at the promise first. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What are these things? All of the glory of Romans 8. Perhaps nowhere else in Scripture is the gospel um, and its applications more clearly articulated than the famous chapter Romans 8. And with this verse, verse 31, the articulation and application of the gospel is complete and it's time just to celebrate. In fact, it's not just time for celebration, it's time for boasting. This is what Paul's doing here. What shall we say? What is the final conclusion to this gospel? We are now invincible. That's not a direct quote, but it might as well be. Paul's concluding summation of the gospel is that God is now for us. Now think about the implications of that statement. Nothing is stronger than God. And if it is true that God is now for you, then nothing is now stronger than you. Therefore, if God is for us, he says, who can be against us? But do we actually believe that? Again, we're tempted to read these words, who can be against us with a cynical heart? Who can be against me? Where would you like me to start, right? And you're right, a myriad of things are against you. 
And I'll just go ahead and name them for us. We'll deal with this text in a very raw way. Who can be against us? I'll name it. In the broadest sense, we essentially face three forms of opposition. Fallen world, Satan, and ourself. So when you say, who can be against this? Let's start with the fallen world, Paul. That was easily perceptible for me last week in a culture formed by communism. We don't need communism to teach us this lesson, though. A militant Western secularism that, 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 that we're seeing all around us, that's against us. A pornography industry that is devouring our population, that's against us. The aggressive sexual revolution that demands we bow down to any and all modern sexual ethics, that's against us. American greed and the demands of the almighty dollar, that's against us. The threat of terrorism, both foreign and domestic, that's against us. We don't need a dictator to understand the hostility of a fallen world. And that's only the world. That's not the only hostility we, can, we are against. How about the spiritual realm? 1 Peter 5. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know. That sounds like someone's against me. Evil spiritual forces constantly seeking the demise of God's glory. And we are caught in the middle of that. We, we can, Satan cannot hurt God. So he seeks to hurt the ones that God loves, his children. So in, in some ways, the gospel that we believe to follow Christ actually elevates our opposition by placing us in the line of spiritual fire, so to speak. So who can be against us? I don't know. How about the devil? And I haven't even gotten to the greatest opposition, right? That would be me. How about my own flesh, my own temptations, my own sins? Nobody is more harmful to me than me. And so I could easily ask this question, I'm against me. So, Paul, who can be against us? Where would you like us to start? But listen, nobody knows this more than Paul himself. He's been imprisoned Shipwrecked, famished, beaten. He knows the opposition of the world. He's been given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. He knows the spiritual battles. He battles his own temptations and sins, calling himself the worst of sinners, saying that the good I should do, I don't do, and that what I ought not to do is the thing, that very thing I keep on doing. He knows what it's like to battle flesh and sin and be his own worst enemy. So, His boasting here is not some flippant, idealistic head in the clouds. Who can be against us? His boast is a qualified boast. If God is for us, now answer my question. If God is for us, who can be against us? The point is this, that Romans 8, God in Christ Jesus has ultimately triumphed over each of those enemies. The redemption of the world is sure. The defeat of Satan is certain. The forgiveness of sin is final. God has defeated all forms of opposition. So Paul is now begging the question, is there anything left? Has God missed something? Sure, you can name things that are against you. Can you name something that is against you which ultimately will triumph? Paul can't, and he is daring the reader to try. A fallen world, undone by the resurrection. Satan and the hosts of evil, soon to be cast into hell where they belong. 
Your own sin nailed to the cross, you bear it no more. What is left? So here's Paul's point in 31. There are many things, powerful things against you, but God is for you. If the one for you is stronger than those against you, you are on an ultimate level invincible. Now just before we move on, just indulge that. Just indulge the dream for a moment that God's omnipotence is on your side. Your failing body will be raised by the power of God. Your many wounds and traumas and abuse from the wrongs of this world will be healed by the mercy of God. Your many tears that you have cried will be wiped away by the tenderness of God. Your great spiritual adversary who has tormented you will be punished forever by the wrath of God. And your failures and your sins will be forgiven and forgotten by the grace of God. Psalm 118.7, we read it in our Old Testament reading. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I shall look in triumph on all my enemies. And yet we still doubt We don't necessarily doubt God's power. That's not where we doubt, right? We believe in God. We believe he is omnipotent. We doubt the second part. We doubt that his power is truly for us. Well, Paul's answer to that is that God literally has no choice but to be for you. So we've seen the promise of invincibility. Let's look at the foundation of invincibility. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The surety of God's promise is grounded in the cost of God's promise. God did not flippantly decide to be for you. That was never an option for him. If he wants to be for us, things were going to have to get messy. And indeed they did. The casualty of his favor we see here was his only son. Look at the language of 32 because it's shocking. He who did not spare his own son. What a loaded way to speak of Christ's death because it implicates God. As I meditated on this verse, I I just could not believe Paul used the word spare. It's so indicting, isn't it? Implying that God didn't have to do this. He could have stopped it. He could have spared his son. When, 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 when Jesus, traumatized by the looming cross, cried and pleaded, Father, let this cup pass from me. He could have said, of course, of course, my son. I mean, I have four boys. Agonizing, crying out to me, spare me, dad. There's no way I'm not going to use everything in my power to answer that cry. He could have said, Yes, my son, let the sinners have the cup that they deserve. You don't have to do this. And Christ would have been spared Calvary's agony. But he didn't. He did not spare his own son. And thus Isaiah is proven true. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has caused him grief. Now why? Why did he not spare his son? So that he might be for you. And yet we doubt. We doubt his favor. We question his love. 
We fear that his patience is going to run dry. And we doubt at the end of the day, we doubt if God is truly for me. What more do you want from him? Christ was not spared. We cost him his son. If he would do that to be for you, I can assure you he's not against you. But even if he was against you, which he's not, even if he did get tired of you, his obstinate people, Suppose your doubts are true and God's forbearance has run dry with you and he's no longer for you. Cursed be the thought because that is a cursed thought. But even if it were true, even then he would still have to be for you. Look again at the verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is with Jesus, graciously give us all things? With Jesus, he is for us. You see, Jesus has a lot invested in your favor. He was incarnate on your behalf. He lived a perfect righteous life on your behalf. He suffered the hell of Calvary on your behalf. He rose from the dead on your behalf. He, he, he is raised and, 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 and reigns and intercedes at God's right hand on your behalf. He has a lot of vested interest in you. In other words, the Father is not the only one determined to see your triumph. So again, just pretend that God the Father decided to give up on us. Even then, the Son of God is there to intercede. And he would need only to hold out his hands and display his scars as proof of purchase of the favor of God. I died for them. We must be for them. Do you remember how the famous prophecy of Isaiah 53 ends, the suffering servant, it all culminates in the verse that I quoted earlier. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But then it ends with this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, meaning when this suffering Messiah offers himself up for the guilt of his people, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Christ who died shall be satisfied. And you, Christian, are his reward. You are the spoils of his sacrifice. And the suffering servant will never, ever, ever be denied the reward of his anguish. So here's Paul's point. Do you want to know the depths of invincibility in verse 31? Then meditate on the assurance of verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Why? He who did not spare his only son, he was against his son that he might be for you. So trust me, he's for you. He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, How will he not with him, with the crucified Jesus, who is determined, uh, who who is so determined that he died to have you, his blood was not shed in vain, he will have you. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Now, with that in mind, let's consider my one question of application I'd like to give. And how can it be anything other than what Paul is proposing in verse 31? I want us to answer his question. 
with all that has been said, I will ask his question and I dare you to provide an answer. If God is for you, who can be against you? Go ahead, Christian. Give him your answer. I suppose I must say here that this promise is only for his people. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you are against God, this promise is not for you. Um, This is for those who are for God, meaning not we made a decision in the past, not we had an emotional experience, but my life right now is marked not perfectly, always repentantly, always struggling, but my life exists for God. Those to whom that is their reality, God says, I am for you. So if that's not you, I plead with you to become you so that God can be for you. But yes, To those who are followers of Jesus, answer his question. I'm not asking you to answer who can be against you. I'm asking you to answer his question, which is, if God is for you, who can be against you? Meaning, who can be against you and when? So what's it going to be? Is it a fallen world? You know, Paul came out this week. I was in Belarus, ironically, of all places, that said, among millennials, only 57% believe the Declaration of Independence guarantees equality and freedom more than Marx's Communist Manifesto. So who knows? Maybe America will be the next in line to give communism a try. But even now, we we don't need what I had last week. Even now, with with um, the rapidly growing secularism, the rise of the non-religious, a a militant, progressive hostility and ideology. Even now, we can name these threats of a fallen world and, and get it off of the big stuff, get it off of the big cultural, institutional stuff. Perhaps it's personal circumstances you are facing in this fallen world. Singleness, infertility, unemployment, marital strife, wayward children, depression, cancer, you're approaching death. Is it the circumstances of this fallen world? Or is it Satan and his dominion of evil? Or is it you and your failures and your sins? Perhaps the one sin you struggle so much with and keep succumbing to. Perhaps that one past discretion that deeply harmed you and others. You know, the big sin that you just can't let go. Is it that? What is it? Name something stronger than God. The point, of course, is there is nothing to be named. There is nothing stronger than the God who is for you, which means you are invincible. Now, let's act like it. You know, Bell Russians have this reputation of stone-faced, you know, frowning, cold, no emotions, keep to yourself kind of people. And, you know, of course that's who they are in their past. You, you have one wrong conversation with someone and KGB shows up and takes you and your family. So they've learned to be fearful, hopeless, and just silent. But there, here's the thing. My first, day, um, my first day, I didn't get any time engaging the greater culture at large. We got picked up from the airport by friends from our partnering church. We 
Uh, we pretty much just went straight to the conference um, where there are many uh, dear believers gathering at this illegal gathering. And then afterwards, we went to McDonald's. God bless McDonald's over there, food-wise. We went to McDonald's, and we just stayed up late with these brothers and sisters. And it was nothing like I expected. Nothing. Joyful, smiley, friendly, lovely people. And I thought, you know, this whole reputation of Eastern Europe, that's just an uncharitable stereotype. These people are incredible. And at one point I said to my new best friend, um, Yulia, there's like hundreds of Yulia, but this Yulia uh, was with me all week and she was kind of my guide and translator and all this stuff. And she's just such a lovely soul and always smiling. And I said to her, at one point I said, you're so smiley, aren't you supposed to be like mean? And she said, oh, just wait till you experience Belarus. And then on the second day, I did. And it's true. An entire culture of frowns. But within this culture of despondency, there is this tiny, peculiar counterculture of audacious confidence and joy. And that's how our trip ended. After days at an illegal conference, after Sunday worship at an illegal church where an American illegally preached the gospel hope to Belarusians who on the surface have no reason for hope. And you know how we did what we did Sunday evening when it was all over? We partied. We rented out a local burger place. We feasted. We toasted. We laughed. We cried. And we brazenly protested the darkness all around us. Saying, in effect, this gospel feast is stronger than any form of oppression. Brothers and sisters, Christians are supposed to be really, really confident people. Did you know that? We're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be bold and valiant. We're supposed to take risks in the name of the gospel. Where does that come from? A deeply rooted, fully internalized conviction that nothing can stand against you and you are invincible. No matter what your thoughts might be thinking, no matter what your feelings might be feeling, no matter what your circumstances might be saying, no matter anything you might be naming, nothing is stronger than the God who is for you. And so, if so, favored of God, beloved of God, who can be against you? Let me pray. We believe, help our unbelief, oh God. We want this confidence, we want this conviction, we want this joy, we want this hope. Our circumstances besiege us. I pray that we would trust this promise is stronger than any and all circumstance. We've heard the word preached, now feed our souls with the table, which is a demonstration that you in fact did not spare your own son, but that you intend to with him freely give us all things. Now it is a taste, one day it will be a feast. And so as we come to the table... Fill us with hope. In Jesus' name, amen.